American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Now you might have heard tell. And you may need to sit down for this one because it may come as a shock that there's a lot of people on social media that have some really bad opinions. I don't mean they're just wrong, like they're just way wrong, not even in the same universe. You know, some of it's malicious, some of it's just ignorant, some of it's people wanting to fake it until they make it and act like they know what they're talking about. And in no area is it more apparent on social media that people may not know what they're talking about than when they start invoking the law. Legal terminology is something you can stick into something like a tweet or a social media post on Facebook, and it instantly sounds like it's got a lot of gravity to it. But the thing about it is, is even lawyers would have to tell you that years of study, you still don't know everything about the law. The law is a very complex thing. Thomas Feynman, when he wrote Law 101 book in the introduction to it, he explains it this way. He says, for all our endless fascination with the law, it is hard for more p- most people to learn more about this substance. The law is so complex and voluminous that no one, not even the most knowledgeable lawyer, can understand it all. Moreover, lawyers and legal scholars have not gone out of their way to make the law accessible to the ordinary person. Just the opposite. The legal profession, like priests of some obscure religion, too often try to keep the law mysterious and accessible, but everybody can learn something about the law. But what something do you want to learn about? Well, in this modern era that we live in, social media has not made that process of making the law more accessible all the better because now we have folks that want to take one little term and run with it. We have people that want to gatekeep their profession and keep it you know, somewhat inaccessible. And then current events happen, like what we've seen with the COVID for the last year and a half, where people really need to have a better understanding of how laws work. Things like public health law, constitutional rights law, just practical everyday things where the law really affects our life. Can a governor order something shut down? Can a business owner have rights against the government? Do you have a rights when it comes to vaccinations and things like this? All of these matters have been discussed ad nauseum on social media. And bad lawyering opinions has shown up in droves. And that's why we want to talk to our friend M. Carpenter today. She spends quite a bit of time on social media stamping out ignorance as best she can. She's a senior editor also at Ordinary Times. You can find her work at ordinary-times.com. She's also our primary editor and my particular friend, and I'm thrilled to have her. She's done a lot of writing lately. One of her pet peeves is on HIPAA, which has made all kinds of rounds on social media 
What does that actually mean? Why is it being applied so badly? She'll also talk about things like the Nuremberg Codes. If you know anything about Nuremberg, that was the war crime tribunal for the Nazis after World War II. What does that have to do with trying to get a glazed donut? She's going to explain it all. There's also some practical stuff that we keep hearing in politics these days. I'm sure by now you've heard the phrase, yell fire in a crowded theater somewhere along the lines of First Amendment discussions of free speech. What does that actually mean? Where did it come from? And is that a defense or an excuse of certain kinds of speech? We're going to ask him this directly because I'm not a lawyer. She is. She's going to explain it to us so we have a little bit better understanding. And when we run into these things online where folks want to use these legal terms, maybe we're a little bit better equipped for the discourse. So today on our episode of Herd Tell, we're going to dig into some legal jargon, bad takes, and some good faith from M. Carpenter, who's going to help us out with all this. We'll get to it right after this. And we're with our friend M. Carpenter. She's an attorney. She's a writer. She's a senior editor at Ordinary Times, which you can find her writing at ordinary-times.com. She does a great Wednesday legal feature every week, along with another great writing. M., thank you so much for taking time with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, You're here for two main purposes. One is to explain HIPAA, which is one of your pet (laughs) peeves on social media, which everybody can follow you at West Virginia Esquires on the Twitter and the other is to chew bubble gum, and I'm assuming you're all out of bubble gum. So, do you want to start attacking HIPAA? Yes, let's. I don't want to attack HIPAA. HIPAA is not a bad thing. I want to attack the people who invoke its name uh, improperly or take the name of HIPAA in vain. Okay. Well, HIPAA's been just getting <laughs> flogged on social media in the age of COVID. But first, let's, let's slow walk me through this like I'm five because you're an attorney and I'm not. HIPAA. Sure. That's with two A's. What does it actually mean? It's an acronym. So let's just start there. What actually is HIPAA? HIPAA is the Health Insurance Privacy Accountability Act. That's what H-I-P-A-A stands for, Health Insurance Privacy and Accountability Act. And the, the intention of this is to protect your medical records from disclosure to uh, people who should not, you have not given consent to have your medical records. What it is not is a law that says people cannot ask you about your health records. And that's where we're seeing a lot of um, improper use of HIPAA on Twitter and such, especially with the vaccines, saying that, you know, if Krispy Kreme is asking you to show you show them your vaccine card in exchange for a free donut, that is not violating HIPAA. And the reason is, is first of all, people can ask you. That's not against against HIPAA. Second of all, Krispy Kreme is not what we call a HIPAA covered entity. HIPAA covers people who, in the course of their job or their business, people or entities who have access to your medical records as part of their work. Your doctor's office, obviously, and the people in in the office who work for the doctor who have access to your records. Insurance companies. And then uh, what we call third-party business associates. And that would be things like um, third-party billers. A lot of doctors don't do their own billing. They send their their records over to a third party biller who then prepares the invoices and bills insurance and sends out you know bills to to patients they by virtue of being a business associate in in having access to medical records hipaa covers them as well 
doesn't cover your employer asking you for a doctor's note when you're sick. Doesn't cover Krispy Kreme asking you about your vaccination status. Doesn't cover your neighbor gossiping about seeing you at the gynecologist last week. None of those things are HIPAA because they are not HIPAA covered entities asking you or disclosing things. Um, I'm perfectly within the, my legal rights to ask you your medical status, and you're within your legal rights to tell me to mind my own business. Uh, there's nothing wrong with asking. So that's the main thing to remember about HIPAA, what everybody's getting wrong, is asking you about your medical history doesn't violate HIPAA. Now, I want to caveat that with in certain situations, such as um, employment, asking you about your medical records or medical status can be problematic, um, but that's going to be under ADA discrimination, if at all. It's not going to be HIPAA. Is now, that helpful? Yeah. I one, one way this came up, I remember when I was working and I was in management at a company, a, a pretty sized nationwide company, was when they started with the health plan, they started doing these well health initiatives where, well, you'll get a discount if you don't smoke and you get a discount if you exercise and you'll get a discount if you're if you lose a certain amount of weight and these sort of things. And then all of a sudden everybody started screaming HIPAA, HIPAA, HIPAA. And as a manager in the business, that's when I started having to dig into it. It's like, OK, well, the company's pushing this. The guys are all getting on WebMD and LawyerMD and whatever else and pushing back and saying they're not allowed to ask for this sort of thing. When, when does that start happening in the public of the, that line getting blurred of where their private medical information is actually a HIPAA-covered entity or just a privacy and legally-covered entity? And when is it, okay, they can ask you, you don't have to tell them, but then there could be repercussions and consequences to not discussing it with a work situation or a business situation like with the COVID where they want to impose certain restrictions or even with the government for that matter? Well, when your employer, let's start with the the incentives, the insurance incentives. Those are usually voluntary programs, and if you don't want to participate, you're you don't have to. So, uh, but you don't get the, the discount if you don't participate. They're coercing me, and I, I sat through <laughs> meeting after meeting hearing this, so that's why I bring right. it up. It, it, it's coercion if you don't, and it's not fair because fair is a real good legal term, right? Right. But it's available to everyone. There's no discrimination because you choose not to participate. I could foresee right. a, a potential issue if you can't participate. For example, if uh, one of the incentives is proving that you have walked a certain number of miles per week and you can't walk, you're in a wheelchair. Obviously, that uh, is a different situation. I'm not going to say one way or the other because I'm, I haven't run into that, but I could see that being a potential issue where you cannot avail yourself of the discount. I think an employer could, or a health plan could find an alternative um, for folks in that situation where they could achieve, get the same discount by you know, some other measure. So uh, for, for that situation, you know, I think that that's fine. Um, where you get into trouble uh, is a, well, uh, ask me the second part of your question again, sorry. I have no idea what it was. <laughs> no, no, no. The, the, the second part is is the the idea is that folks, you know, they want to know where that gray area of mm -hmm. where HIPAA is or where even just regular privacy laws and things like this start to apply when they have 
an employer or a business in their private life or even the government asking them all these questions since more and more information is being required because of situations Mm -hmm. like COVID, like insurance benefits, like uh, health initiatives from the government and from their personal insurance. The the way insurance is being done is rapidly changing. I I don't think people understand where their private information is really their property, quote unquote, and when it starts falling into these areas of legal concern like HIPAA. Yeah, well, think about when you go to the doctor and you have to sign their privacy practices or that you have received a copy of their privacy practices. Or if you're filling out their paperwork and there's a um, disclosure form where you fill in if you, for example, have another doctor who you want to disclose your health information to. That's why those things exist. Read through that privacy notice and you'll probably see exactly who's getting your information. And it would be, you know, your insurer may get a copy of your medical record for obvious reasons or their third-party biller. So what it comes down to is that you, you have a right to consent to the release of your medical information. And when you sign that you have received that privacy notice, you are basically consenting to what's in it. Um, and when you, obviously, when you say, yes, you can send these records to a doctor. So you're protected there. When you talk about other situations. The big thing here is what's mandatory and what's voluntary. And most of these things are voluntary. Uh, There are situations, you know, such as enrollment in schools. It's always been the case in every state that for the most part, you have to show proof of vaccination of your child in order to enroll them in school. There are ways to get around that in most states. There are uh, medical exemptions or religious exemptions where you can fill out a paper of why your child should not be subject to this policy. Um, In almost every state, you can get a religious exemption. Uh, West Virginia is one of the exceptions. I think there are only two exceptions and the other one was Mississippi, I think. Um, The only exemption available in West Virginia to the vaccination requirement is medical and it's very, very difficult to get. So in West Virginia, you know, your children have to be fully vaccinated to go to school. They could add COVID, the COVID vaccine to that list at some point of the required vaccinations. Uh, but I can tell you the flu shot is not one of them. There's no requirement that your child get a flu shot in order to go to school. Uh, there are some situations of employment where the where vaccinations are required, such as uh, I think healthcare situations, a lot of healthcare uh, employment require you to have um, vaccinations in order to to work there. And there may be similar exemptions available uh, for employers as well. So there are only a few situations in which you're required to get the vaccine. Uh, my understanding is that uh, our servicemen and women, there are several required vaccinations for, uh, for our service members. You could speak to that better than I can. Yeah, what they're doing is... Um... Vaccines are mandatory when you're in the military. We got flu shot every year, whether you wanted it or not. Usually you got the stupid messed up the nose. I'd rather have the needle, but that's another matter for another day. Um, but you, you get your shots. I've still got my smallpox scar, for example, you know, on my shoulder where you got the old school pitchfork. They stick you 20 times or however that worked. You know, you, you get your shots. The issue they were having with the military with the COVID vaccinations is they are emergency approved, so they couldn't technically force them to do them. 
Uh, so they have been doing it by other means. You know, you cannot get into a DFAC unless you're vaccinated. You cannot go to the gym. You know, you basically make it where life is impossible unless you have the vaccine. But again, you know, talk about terms of service. You're in the military. There's a whole lot of shut up and collar when you're in the military and you sign for it and you're just going to kind of have to deal with it. And it'll probably get litigated down. But sooner or later, everybody in the military is going to get one of these COVID vaccines because that's just how the military works. They're, they're going to be vaccinated. The military makes uh, service members take all kinds of vaccines that normal everyday Americans probably don't have to get because we go to parts of the world where smallpox is still a massive problem, where, other, you know, other mm-hmm. diseases um, I'm glad you touched on the schools, though, because that's the one that seems to really be getting people hot. Um, and we're not medical people, so I don't want to talk about the, the vaccines themselves because we don't know. But, you know, they're they're getting approval for 12 and under. Uh, you talked about West Virginia. I have a child in West Virginia. I told her to go ahead and get vaccinated. She was 17. She since turned 18 because she was school age. I was like, look, they're going to make you get it for the fall anyway. You might as well get ahead of the line. And she was vaccinated back in April. Uh, they're already vaccinating school children in that state. Here we get into the pseudo legalese of social media again. And you are the attorney. I'm not. So you can kind of cut through some of this where all of a sudden parents who do a vaccination record every single year uh, are having a problem with the COVID vaccine being, and again, it's emergency applied because it's not fully approved. So there is a legal aspect to that that's probably going to get challenged in court. Um, Where are you at with things like they're going to throw these pseudo legal terms like HIPAA, like these other things at schools, and they don't really apply because this is something that happens anyway. Yeah, it's it's the same type of thing. Um, requiring a vaccination does not violate HIPAA. Again, HIPAA is only about the uh, improper disclosure of medical information by people who have custody of medical records. So it doesn't apply at all. There's no HIPAA involved at all. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if they're going to be requiring COVID vaccinations in public schools. It's quite possible that they will. Again, they don't require the flu, uh, but I think, you know, we're all aware that COVID is not the flu. Um, so it's possible that it will come up and be be a requirement. And then uh, I think it would be treated just as other vaccinations have been uh, with exemptions where they apply, um, which means most, most of us here in West Virginia will be out of luck as far as getting our children exempt from that. So we'll see. Uh, but I don't think, you, you know, right now it's 12 to 15. It's going to be, uh, from my understanding, probably late fall or um, end of next year, or the end of this year, before children under 12 are allowed to be vaccinated. That could change. But I don't think we're looking at mass vaccination of young children prior to school starting in September or August, but we'll see. Um, but mandatory vaccination, Supreme Court, not a lot of recent case history on vaccination. We go all the way back to um, Massachusetts versus Jacobson. And that was, uh, I believe that was the smallpox vaccine. And the Supreme Court basically gave the okay on um, mandatory vaccination. He didn't want to get one. He was fined. So, uh, and he was, you know, going to be continually fined, I believe, or until he's, he um, consented to the vaccination and submitted to getting his shot. And the court said that the public health uh, agencies in this country can make that decision and, and that that's okay. And that, that case is still good law. So um, 
I don't know if, if we have a challenge we can look forward to based solely on the COVID vaccination, but history so far of the law is on their side as far as requiring it uh, as a public health issue. We've seen now in Pennsylvania where we already have ballot initiatives for state constitutional amendments uh, curtailing some of those emergency powers. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I suspect we'll see a lot of legislation through this summer and this fall in a lot of areas, and I assume we will see just an equal or greater amount of legal challenges to that legislation to mm-hmm. a lot of the public health and emergency. Would you see that coming as well? I do, and I think that... Um the states are within their rights, perhaps, to make those um, changes legislatively or constitutionally. The the Supreme Court, you know, said that the public health departments are, well, as an as an arm of the government for the state, have the right to make those decisions. So if the if if they have the right to make those decisions, it stands to reason they have the right to make the opposite decision. Uh, I, I know a lot of people would have, would have objections to that and say, um, you know, then what happens when the state next door says nobody who's not vaccinated can cross the border? Obviously, that's not going to be very enforceable for unless we're stopping everybody's car and asking for their card. We're getting way far afield of reality of, of what's actually possible there. You actually wrote about this, and this is where some more of the pseudo-legal social media stuff like HIPAA gets abused a lot. You actually wrote uh, a piece at Ordinary-Times.com. We've seen a lot of things now. Uh, States are having lotteries to try to get people vaccinated. Uh, They're coming up with all kinds of fancy things to get vaccinated. Uh, Mm -hmm. Krispy Kreme. Uh, decided to give out free donuts, and some people had some horrendously bad takes about Krispy Kreme donuts, saying, well, that violates HIPAA if you try to get a Krispy Kreme donut. (laughs) Does lottery incentives and Krispy Kreme donuts violate HIPAA? No. No, because once again, I am 100% sure. Uh, Even if Krispy Kreme was a (laughs) HIPAA-covered entity, which they are not, it does not prevent them. (laughs) HIPAA-glazed entity. HIPAA glazed entity, if they were glazed with the requirements of HIPAA, they still would not be violating it by asking you a question about your health. If they if they were a HIPAA glazed entity and they took the information about your health and disclosed it to a third party without uh, proper ability to do so or consent, then that would be a HIPAA violation. But uh, as it is now, that you can if you tell them you're vaccinated and they tell the world about it, they have not violated HIPAA because they're not a HIPAA-covered entity. You know how you can tell if it's not a HIPAA violation? The red light is not on outside. <laughs> so, um, Good one. The, uh, funny enough, we, the reason we keep harping on this is, you know, you are an attorney. I am not. A lot of other people are not. Um, we keep seeing these pseudo-legal terms thrown around on social media, and I think folks just run with them. Uh, you actually cited a tweet, and I'll just read it because it's a real doozy, but um, such cheap bribery may breach the Nuremberg Codes. Neither donut makers nor journalists have the right to convince people to take experimental treatments under HIPAA. Um, okay, I... I honestly didn't know what the Nuremberg Code was, so I went and looked it up, and that was, well, I'll let you explain it. What's the Nuremberg Code for for us <laughs> non-legal types who have no idea? What, I know what Nuremberg trials were, but the codes are apparently something a little different. Yeah, same Nuremberg. Um, <laughs> there was a case, USA versus... Good. 
No, no, it's not. But it is about medical experimentation. And there was a case in the United States, and I don't know all the details of it, but it was USA v. Brandt. And the court set forth some guidelines or um, ethical practices for the experimentation uh, on human experimentation. So, again, I don't know if this is... um, binding law or just a, a best practices. I don't, I'm not familiar with the case, but it doesn't have anything to do with HIPAA. HIPAA does not protect you from human experimentation. There are other regulations that protect you from that, but it is not HIPAA. Um, and the I, violation of the Nuremberg codes is not a, a law. It's not a criminal thing. It's nothing in the United States in its own set of its own self as its own set of laws. It doesn't exist as a thing that um, you need to be worried about, especially with with regard to these vaccines. Uh, We all know that these are new. The information of what they are, what what's in them is, is available. If you look for it, Um, you normally, if you, when you go to get a vaccine, you are signing a form letting that you are agreeing to this vaccine. So uh, I think that we are, even if there was such a thing as violation of Nuremberg codes, this would not be it. So it's kind of like the pirate codes. It's really more of a suggestion. See, I'm, I'm not I'm not a lawyer, but when something leads off with guideline, I'm just going to kind of assume there's probably not a lot of legal binding authority coming in these texts of the document. Right. A lot of it, a lot of what's in a Supreme Court opinion is called dicta, which means it's just sort of them Make talking. Make sure you pronounce that correctly. <laughs> dicta or dictum. Uh, and, and that is just when the, the Supreme Court is talking about their rationale or their reasoning behind it or explaining their decision. That's different from the holding, which is the actual takeaway of the case, the binding part of a case. And um, maybe I will read through USAV Brandt and write it up for one of my upcoming Wednesday writs to flesh that out a bit more. Oh, please do. And what, one other one I wanted to hit on you with, um, because we hear everybody using this lately, uh, President Biden used it. He used it in his not the State of the Union <laughs> speech that was totally a State of the Union speech. Uh, my favorite one lately was I heard uh, CNN anchor Don Lemon and Andrew Cuomo arguing about it, and they were both wrong. Uh, yelling fire in a crowded theater violates the First Amendment. I, I, it, it's almost become a, a thing unto itself, people using this, but you are a lawyer. I am not. I, explain to me, uh, like I'm five, the First Amendment and yelling fire in a theater because it just seems to not want to go away and people just want to keep using it. Yeah, the history of that particular quote is interesting. It dates back to the... 1910, 19 teens, I don't recall exactly which year it was. Uh, Interestingly, before that decision, there had been several instances, tragedies of someone doing that, yelling fire in a crowded, um, not necessarily a theater. There was one incident. It was a upstairs of a union hall. They were having a Christmas party for children and someone yelled fire falsely. As it turned out, there was no fire. And then there was a stampede and several people were killed, mostly children. It was a very sad, tragic incident. And it was a hoax. There wasn't actually a fire. There was no fire. There's some, there's a little bit of, of speculation that there could have possibly been, but the general consensus is no, there wasn't. And that it was, it was during a strike. And, um, there's a lot of suggestion that it was a 
pro-company anti-union person who yelled the fire and then had these um, union workers and their children um, in a panic, in a panic and causing some um, serious injuries and 73 deaths, I believe. Very, very tragic case. So that may have been what was on uh, the mind of, of uh, Justice Holmes whenever he uh, made this statement. And, and the funny thing is, is the case that this statement arises out of has nothing to do with anything like causing a panic. Uh, what it was was a um, anti-draft document that had been circulated, a man who had set forth the um, his, his objections to the draft and to World War I in general. And this was being circulated and he was prosecuted for it. And the Supreme Court's holding was that his arrest did not violate the First Amendment because his actions were harming the war effort. And it was, uh, you know, um, clear and present danger was the, the, the words used by the justice. And he used the example of the crowded theater as, as, as uh, support for his um, conclusion that the First Amendment is not absolute. And he says, for example, falsely yelling fire in a theater is what he said. He actually didn't say crowded, and he had also specified falsely. Uh, would create a clear and present danger and is not protected speech. So that kind of took hold, um, but that decision was very highly criticized even back then, and Justice Holmes himself seemed to change his mind about it because it wasn't long after that he joined um I forget, Justice Brandeis, and I forget who else. There's another, I can't think of his name right now, another one of the the big well-known justices of the time in a dissent in another similar case of a um, political speech, anti-American perhaps, it may have even been pro-communism speech that they, uh, the, the majority um, upheld whatever punishment for this speech as being uh, per- being okay under the First Amendment, not being a violation. But Justice Holmes himself joined with the dissent and had kind of a change of heart from the previous decision he'd written and, and did think that that was a violation of freedom of speech. And then 1969, I believe it was, was the Brandenburg case in which the court changed the standard of when speech that um, can when it's going to be protected and when it may not be. And it wasn't that it would not, that it would just present a clear and present danger. Um, Giving a speech advocating violence in and of itself is protected speech. Um, The threat in order for this to be non-protected speech, the threat needs to be imminent as in happening, you know, immediately, you know, go beat up that person standing right there. Do it now. Everybody, come on, let's go. Get him. That is more along the lines of the type of speech that can get you into trouble. So a lot of it has to do with what's the consequences. Yeah, I can stand up and yell fire in a theater. If nothing happens, nothing happens. My speech is still protected. If, on the other hand, I know there's no fire and I do that and there is a stampede and people are hurt, I could very easily find myself charged with, um, you know, disorderly conduct or um, if someone is killed, sadly, that could be an involuntary manslaughter because the the consequences of my actions are still um, something that I have to take responsibility for. It's not my speech. It is that someone got hurt that I'm being charged with. There's no criminal violation of of your speech necessarily unless there's 
if you know you had a foreseeable result of that speech and it was imminent not something that you know a week later someone goes in and gets in a fight and says i was prompted to do this by a speech i heard last week that's fine the, the court says it needs to be imminent and i did write something about this following the january 6th riots in dc um clarifying whether or not uh, then president trump's speech would perhaps fall under brandenburg as, as um inciting a riot and you're skeptical of that and i was getting ready to ask you so i appreciate you bringing it up to, but to bring it to the present tense uh these lawsuits uh against former president trump now over the january 6th riot where they're like well he incited it and you have all the defendants uh a lot of them are going to court and saying well i was told to do this uh you wrote and you were very skeptical that these are going to get uh any kind of a, a resolution against President Trump himself, you more think uh, the underlings who had more ready designs on it would be the ones that probably end up catching the hell for this. Uh, but you don't think legally, uh, maybe civilly, those are a little different matters, but you don't think those really apply to incitement as we understand it, even though, again, you're a lawyer, I'm a not. You look at something like that and go, oh, well, he incited them to go do this. But legally, that's a very, very specific term, incitement. Yeah, and he was fairly careful with his words. You know, he didn't say, let's go down there. He didn't really and, say anything he doesn't usually say. It was right. the environment as well. And I'm I'm completely against it. I'm horrified with what happened on January 6th. But, you know, if you take that speech out of January 6th, it's really not that different of a normal Trump speech other than the we're going to go down there, which he didn't do. Right. So we're going to go down there and um, basically go down there and protest. You know, he didn't say, let's go down there and attack Nancy Pelosi or, you know, let's go down there and ransack the Capitol. Um, and even if he had, he sort of would have needed to lead them down there, which um, he said he was going with them, but he didn't. He went back to watch TV while the drama unfolded. So, yeah, I think that was sort of it was sort of an iffy case uh, as far as it being a defense. It could be a defense for the people who are um, now charged with doing what they interpreted him as saying, but um, that would be probably up to a jury to decide whether or not <laughs> that that's going to help them out. But I don't, I don't think that there's a good legal um, uh, charge against Trump or uh, to hold him accountable criminally for inciting. At least with what, what we know now. Correct. Well, yeah. Well, uh, what we know now, and we heard his speech. And so as far as incitement, there would have, yeah, definitely needed to be something more than just his speech. And reasonable minds can disagree about that. Um, a lot of people disagreed with me when I wrote that. I'd have to go back and see exactly what I said and, and the details of it. But I do think that it's not completely unreasonable to say he knew what he was saying. He knew what he was causing, what was going to happen when he said what he did. Um, reasonable minds can differ there. I just don't think it's, I think it's good. I think it's a very, very high bar to clear. And when they say imminent, it really needs to be right then and there that they're inciting this to occur. One of the reasons I respect you so much, and I, I, I like, you know, as a writing colleague, and then just as somebody that reads your work. Um, and the reason I keep bringing up the term, you know, pseudo legal on social media is, uh, the the law really is a two-edged sword. It's it's brutal. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of black and white. Um, it doesn't have a lot of nuance in a lot of places to it. Uh, it is what it is. So 
the reason I think it's important to really talk about these these terms because in a social media world where anybody can Google any legal term, take a 30-second read of it, and then think they got the, the gist of it, or they just get a term like HIPAA or a term like Nuremberg Codes, and they start throwing around, and somebody doesn't know any better, like, oh, HIPAA, oh, Hitler. You know, I think it's really important to talk about these things because with the more and more information and the more and more with the social media, um, this stuff... You're usually with the law, I, I forget the quote about the law, maybe you can help me with it, but there, it, it's kind of an old axiom in law is like, the, you know, the core of the law is you're not going to get what you want out of it, right? Correct. Yeah. It, it, I find myself in an interesting position sometimes. Um, I mean, full disclosure, I tend liberal. Uh, you may know that. And you're, I don't know ah! if everyone, <laughs> if everyone does, but Garlic I'm very much a liberal. <laughs> but, um, because of my understanding of the law and, and how it works, I think that it puts me at odds sometimes with the positions I'm expected to take as a liberal because, you know, I, I, I can understand. For example, I would love to say that Donald Trump deserves to be in prison for what he did on January 6th and what he prompted. But I can look at the actual um, legal language uh, surrounding those those types of things subjectively and come up with the opinion that or objectively, I'm sorry, and come up with the opinion that it's not there. Um, so it does put me at odds at times. Well, I'm not a liberal, but uh, I am your friend and I appreciate your opinion anyway. Even when you're wrong, you're entertainingly wrong. So we'll call it good. How would you know? I've never been wrong in an argument with you. See, just like that right there. That, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> if you've never had an editor, uh, that's that's how it goes. Uh, senior editor for Ordinary-Times.com, M. Carpenter. A lot of really good stuff. Really appreciate you. Folks can find her at West Virginia Esquirus on the Twitter. She sends out all kinds of great stuff there. She is the also a, the, she's a West Virginia double grad, double mountaineer, um, mm-hmm. like my father. Uh, so, uh, she's also a Twitter supper club member in good standing. Make sure you check out all the things she's cooking in her kitchen and we will forgive her, her liberalism because we like your great opinions and we very much respect you and thank you for them. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Anytime. Next time we have some kind of uh, legal thing, we'll make sure to have you back as soon as possible. Sounds good. You know, that last little bit by him, there's kind of the important part. And while we respect her and wanted her opinion on legal matters like this and read her writing and want to talk to her about these things, understanding that sometimes what you understand something to be like the law or facts or just understanding the times that we live in, they're going to butt up against your assumptions of what you're supposed to believe or your assumptions of what other people think you're going to believe. And you're going to have to make a decision on how to adjust to that. But that's a good thing. We should be challenging our thinking. Affirmation may make you feel good, but it doesn't really do anything to expand your mind or let you continue to grow as a human being. Information does. And the thing with the law is we don't have to understand all of it. That's not possible. We've established that. But it's all out there for us to discover and to work on. So it doesn't kill us when we have a legal term batting around on social media to take the extra couple seconds to Google it or to talk to a lawyer. They're right there on Twitter. You can converse with them or further research it before we just react and retweet or put it on a Facebook post or go on some kind of a rant about it or trying to use it worse as some kind of legal jargon that we don't fully understand as a weapon to make a point. 
most of the time you're going to wind up just acting silly and looking even sillier. But the thing about it is, is if you're attracting people to you by doing silly things, they're going to be just as silly as you are, and then it's going to be even a bigger mess. It's important for us to find people like him who, with good faith, even when we disagree with our own things, we know that she's at least giving us her opinion as best she can derive it from the facts and from the law and from her expertise. We can still disagree with our own things, but we know that we need to test our own thinking against people like that because they're coming from a place where they're correct in their thinking and their logic and they want to get it right. This is all part of living in a pluralistic society. We have to work hard on these things. And even something like the law, which a lot of people want to treat as black and white, has plenty of shades of gray in it that we got to deal with. There's nothing wrong with that. We're humans, and the law is written by humans, which means it's got inherent flaws too. It, like us, always has to continually be worked out. Let's just not do it online with short little things and trying to threaten people over glazed donuts and vaccinations because that's just silly. People should get their vaccinations, and we should all be able to come together and agree that more glazed donuts is a good thing in our society. Thank you, M. Carpenter, for joining us today. You can find her on Twitter at WVEsquires. You can also find her at Ordinary-Times.com. She writes extensively. She has a weekly legal feature almost every Wednesday, along with other writing that she does. Next time on Her Tell, John McCumber is going to be joining us. Now, John's a great guest. Uh, we had a great conversation with him. He's been a cybersecurity expert since before they even called it cybersecurity. He's also a retired Air Force officer. He's been writing extensively about the Colonial Pipeline incident and the gas shortages. What does that mean for our country and for you in the future? Does cybersecurity mean more than just your personal data or your passwords? What does it mean for us as a country? How is that integrated into everything we do? And John does a great job of explaining that even though things like cybersecurity and AI and these things are new terms to a lot of us, the principles behind them, like risk management, people management, skill set management, are really old terms. Just this is a new way of developing them. And he'll help break all that down so we can understand those things better. Wherever you are and however you're listening to this podcast, make sure you share and like and comment it. We sure appreciate you listening very much. And until we talk again next time, y'all take care. All the music on Her Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.